I was joking earlier, I feel like we should be watching an episode of Breaking Bad with that music or something. Uh, if you'll notice, I'm drinking out of my new Awaken mug. How you like that? Yeah, keep your ears peeled, friends. That, that's, um, those are more information coming about those at a later date. Um, I, I was saying earlier, if you were here last week for Easter, it felt like we were, if, if, if I could use a car metaphor, it felt like last week was about you know, a Ferrari doing 100 miles an hour, like taking tight corners. It was just like, ah! And this week, it felt like I was in a 62 MG, like driving down the coast to the one, you know, and top down, hair blowing. It's like, ugh. I don't know if you felt that or not in the room, but I did. Um, so good. And you all sounded so lovely today, just beautiful. Love your voices. Um, I'm Micah, by the way, if we haven't met. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Awaken, and I am wearing a sport coat today. I once had a parishioner say, um, Micah, I love Awaken, but uh, there's not a press shirt in the house. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? So today, I'm wearing a press shirt and a sport coat. So there you have it. Um, week three of our series, Wells and Fences, Wells and Fences. Uh, we've done this series before. This is our third time because we are asking a very important question. And that question is, what kind of community do we want to be? Like, maybe no more important question. What kind of church do you want to be? And we are using the six affirmations of the denomination that we're a part of, the Evangelical Covenant Church, to navigate our way through. And this metaphor of a well and fences. Someone came up to me after the first week and they're like, Micah, it shouldn't be well and fences? I was like, point taken. Well and fences. And uh, this metaphor, it, it, it's really getting at, like, what kind of energy? What's the animating force? What's the, like, what's behind this thing? What's the, the personality, the DNA of it? What's the spirit of it? And these two metaphors, well and fences, centered set, bounded set. So if you've been here, you've seen this, this diagram. But on the left is a bounded set. And in a bounded set community, uh, what's most important is the boundary, uh, it's defined by the boundary and who's in and who's out, and there's a certain list of things, criteria by which one enters and or exits. And what's most important in this uh, diagram and, and communities are, like, do you believe what we believe? And everybody in this kind of scenario in community, unity and unison is really important. Like everyone's singing the same notes, right? Uh, on the other hand, the centered set idea, if you keep the metaphor going with music, different notes are actually um, part of the beauty because it creates the possibility for harmony. And while there's a commitment to what's in the center, there is actually a beauty and a necessity for multiple notes in different perspectives because that's what brings the richness and, and the, the beauty. Uh, that's how harmony happens. And so, bounded set, centered set. And we're just saying we're, we're, we're shooting for this, not that. And I, I will say this as we begin this morning. I fear that when, when I speak about bounded sets, I only do so in a pejorative light, in a negative light. And I actually want to walk that back just a hair because they're not always bad. It's not the enemy, it's just that there's more, right? The first step in the spiritual journey, I would argue, is always to some kind of fundamentalism. When someone takes a step in a spiritual journey, what's helpful developmentally our rules and regulations and like a very clear understanding. And we've even heard that in some of the testimonies. So I want to just say that like that's true. 
And it's not that they're always bad, but when you stop there, that's when, it's, that's when it becomes stifling. That's when it becomes, uh, boy, it's like eating donuts all the time. They're not, they're not bad inherently, right? But to do it all the time and that's all you do? Like, okay, so we're just saying that there's more. That's a bad metaphor, I apologize. <laughs> um, but when you're in the second half of life and you're stuck there, that's a problem. That's what I'm saying, right? So we gotta keep moving, we gotta keep walking. We gotta keep doing that. So at, in the well in the center, we're saying out loud, is the life and teachings, the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. That's the well, we gather around that, that's the foundation. Um, in the, uh, so today, we're going to look at this second affirmation, which is the necessity of new birth. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 3, and I'll invite you to stand, as we do, if you can, for the reading of the word. John writes this in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. That's the Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi... We know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Don't you wish you were there in certain moments in scripture? You know, like he's kind of like, ah, I got a question. Jesus answered, Verily, or verily, 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 very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised by me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus said. Pray with me. God, as we gather and we turn our attention to your word, uh, these words which bear witness to the Christ, to Jesus, made known to us. I pray that that would happen again today, that the spirit of the living God, that the spirit of the risen Christ would, would visit us, would meet us, would find us where we are, and move us, invite us, challenge us to take a step towards birth, uh, being born again, I pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. I was five years old when I was invited to my first five-day club. I thought there was something going on. I was five, I was going to a five-day club. It was at Pam Gall's house. She lived down the street from us. If you can imagine, this is the 80s, like the quintessential evangelical Christian family of the 80s. Are you, you picture them? Like all in matching denim in their fo family photo. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you've got it, Pam Gall. She invited me to her five-day club, and I remember vividly, right after singing, I will never march in the infantry, fly over the enemy, shoot the artillery, right? Right after that, I went into the laundry room, and I prayed to receive Jesus into my heart at five years old. I remember the laundry hanging on the line, and I remember Pam standing next to the laundry tub, and I remember praying you know, the sinner's prayer, to receive Jesus into my heart at five years old. Some would say I was born again that day. Now, you might be thinking, Micah, you were five. Can you really be born again at five? I don't know. I just know I remember. I remember being there, and I remember saying that prayer, and I remember that moment. It was an important one. I remember when I was 14 years old, uh, summer after my freshman year of high school, we went to Chicago on... <laughs> 
I went to the Sun Life Evangelism Missions Project. Students in the room, we're going next year. I'd like to invite you. I'm kidding. We're not. Um, they, they would train us in apologetics, which is like the defense of your faith. You know, you got to spiritual jujitsu. You got to know how to answer all the questions. If they throw a curveball at you, you know how to hit it, right? So they would teach you how to do that in apologetics training from like nine to noon. It was intense. And then from one to four on the schedule, we hit the streets, which meant we went out and like street preached to people. 14 years old, I did this. And it was awful. It was terrible. I prayed for rain every day of that week. It was like, oh God, from one to four, let it rain. And I wasn't asking for the spirit to come down. I was just like, let it rain. I remember, though, on the shore of Lake Michigan, standing, giving all that I knew of myself at 14 to all of God that I knew. And committing my life to following this Jesus in a way that I hadn't yet before. Some would say I was born again again that day. Born again. What an interesting idea. I mean, can you imagine being Nicodemus went that first day when Jesus was like, you got to be born again. Like, what are you talking about? That's what I want to talk about today. What does it mean to say there is a necessity for new birth? Now, I recognize, to those of you skeptics in the room, I love you. I often find myself in your chair. I get it, that little caveat, to say necessity for new birth means, like, it's necessary. It's needed. Without it, something is wrong or we have a problem. So necessity of new birth. I get that it can sound very like totalitarian, authoritative, like my way or the highway, leave it, or, you know, take it or leave it, either or, I get it. Uh, and I want to just say, uh, like, I, I want to recognize that's in the room, possibly. It's, it's in me, truth be told. I had a real hard time writing the sermon, because I'm like, can you, I don't, can you say that? Like, ah. So, um, I'm going to do my best to present and to offer to you what I believe to be true about this affirmation of necessity of new birth. And I do believe that it's true, because it's true in me. And so um, I'll just speak from my own experience on this one. Um, But I want to try to do this in a winsome way, in a way that's generous, in a way that's like a well and not a fence. See what I'm saying, right? So a few notes about the text that we read uh, as we jump in here. Nicodemus, great name. Uh, is a, he's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the group of people who secured Jesus' um, arrest and then eventual crucifixion and death. Uh, he comes to Jesus in darkness. No small point that John's making. In John's gospel, often there's this metaphor, this sort of back and forth between light and darkness. John says that um, Jesus is the light of the world and we've been called out of darkness and into light and Nicodemus comes in the dark. That's not a mistake. The imagery here is that he comes in secret, he comes in the cover of darkness to ask Jesus the questions, which is to say the person who should have been enlightened is in the dark. The person who should have the answer to the question that he's asking, according to all the religious rules and regulations and training, is the guy who's coming under the cover of darkness. So it's a little bit of an intrigue, right? A little mystery, which is great. It's a it's this beautiful progression because Nicodemus, like, he makes his way slowly but surely to the point where at the end of the gospel, he's there taking the body of Jesus off the cross. And then there's the Samaritan woman who's like, fine, okay, I'm in. Jumps all the way, right? Total conversion moment. But you get them both in John's gospel, which I think is great. 
He's born of Abraham, this guy Nicodemus, which means he's a Jew's Jew. He is of the Jewish religious system. He's of the Jewish ruling class. He's from the right side of the tracks. He went to the right school. He's from the right family. And yet, Jesus and John paint him as a person who does not, well, let's just say it this way, um, his, his religious affiliation or even this covenant between God and the Israelites is not enough. It does not ensure his participation and his entrance to the kingdom of God that Jesus is speaking about. Rather, being born of the Spirit, being born again, is what's necessary and needed. So a few observations about this passage and the necessity of new birth. And I'm going to try to back into the conversation. I'm going to try to sort of um, draw a picture and then see if we can get it that way. So here's a question for you. What if this is it? Like, what if you were born, you live your life, and then you die, and then you become plant food? Like, what if, what if this is all there is? Like, the breath in my lungs is here now, but it may be gone tomorrow, and then, like, that's it. No mas. Nothing more. What if we're wrong? What if, like, all these people church people, followers of Jesus, the Bible people, what if, what if it's not true? Dave Matthews was right. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We're tripping billies. <laughs> In all seriousness, like, what if that's true? At Clada, the coffee shop down the street, there's a sign in the bathroom that says this, the purpose of your life is whatever you want it to be. What if that's true? What if, like, you determine the purpose of your life, like, your purpose, your intent, why you're here, you decide. Like, you're, you're, the, you're the person that chooses that. What if you were not created with intention? Rather, you're like a random collection of cells and synapses. And how you live your life and the choices that you make really actually doesn't matter. Because there's no moral compass, there's no true north, there's no like that way is the right way. It's just everybody, every man for themselves, every woman for themselves. Like what if that's true? At which point, like you being the center of the universe and your pleasures and your desires as the highest good and goal makes a lot of sense. Like how do you determine that that's any less than or it's, it's not as good as, you know, being other focused or relationship focused or uh, love focused? Like, Who's to, who's to determine which is the best way? What if this is it? Like, eat, drink, and be merry. See you next week. <laughs> uh, like, I, I'm doing this for, to, like, make you wonder. I'm trying to make you uncomfortable. I'm guessing that you're here at least in part because you're not sure that's right. Otherwise, like, you can get good music at the varsity and, like, watch Comedy Central for good communicators. Like, beyond that, you know, you got grape juice and bread at home. Like, what do you need here that you can't get elsewhere? I'm guessing, I'm, like, sneaky suspicion that you're here at least in part because you're like, I don't know if that's it. It seems to me that the wisest humans that have been recorded and the great traditions of the human story and certainly the great religions of the world 
are pointing us in a different direction, that there is something more than the sum of the parts of the universe. Like, take the universe and sum it all together. That's just add it together. And it seems as though that the sum of the parts of the universe doesn't get it all. Said differently, there's this mysterious divine other. Some people call it God. Well, what's the alternative, right? Like, if there is something more, then what is it? And what's the point of this life? Like, why are we here? And what were we made from? And what were we made for? And to be clear, there's a lot of options out there, right? It's like, it's like old country Buffett. Like, a lot of people trying to answer this question. I mean, all the great philosophers of, of humankind have, have wrestled with these questions. So I want to just frame what's happening in Scripture and what is being said. Like, wh- what kind of conversation is it having and what is it trying to add to? And I want to say out loud that the Bible and the Christian story is offering a narrative that there is something more. That the, the some parts of all the, the, of the universe doesn't get it all, but that there's rather something else out there. That there is more beyond when I die. And it's offering a cohesive story as to what that is and why you're here. So we're not just eating bread and drinking wine. We're not just singing songs, but we're participating in a really, really big conversation. Which is why today we try to create a little more space. I want to suggest that in the center of the scriptural story, there are multiple metaphors, and they're all saying the same thing. Jesus, in this story with Nicodemus, says that we must be born again, born of the Spirit. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, says, Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. As if to say that, like, we're all alive, but we're walking around to sleep, and we need to be awakened. Man, what a great name for a church. In Colossians, Paul says we need to be raised to life, like we're you remember Dead Man Walking, the, the, the movie? Like, we're all walking around, and we're, like, uh, we're alive, but we're not fully alive. Or maybe we're even dead in some ways, and we need to be resurrected. John 9, there's a story of a man who was blind who can then see. Luke 15, a, a child who leaves home, is lost, and is found. Who wandered away, but has now come home. The center of the Christian story, there are all these metaphors, and they're all saying the same thing which is that I am limited in nature and God is not. That in God there are infinite possibilities. That I am created and God is creator. Said differently, at the center of the Christian story, there is something that is needed and necessary that is inevitably missing. In me and in you. And in all of us, and try as we might, there seems to be this gravitational pull away from what we're made for and what we're made from, which is love. I choose myself all the time, and so do you. There is this gravitational pull away from others and away from relationships and away from love towards myself like a black hole, you know, just being sucked into itself. Augustine and Luther said that's the definition of sin. Sin is the heart turned in on itself. What was made for love gets turned in on itself, and that is the definition of death. So try as I might, I can't fix that. I can't build that. I can't create that. I can't 
Something is needed and necessary for life and true life, abundant life, full life that I can't accomplish, build, secure, manufacture, create, or sustain on my own. And this is the unique and sharp offering of the gospel of Jesus. That in Christ, something has been offered to you and is being offered to you right now in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So, if there is something more, if this isn't all there is and the sum of the universe's parts is it, nothing more, and if in fact some kind of change or regeneration or new birth, as Jesus talks about, is needed and necessary, and I can't get it on my own, then what? Ah, here we are, right? We're back. So what is required? If new birth, regeneration, being awake, coming alive, being resurrected, if that's needed and necessary and inevitably is missing in me, then what's required? What must I do to inherit eternal life, says the guy to Jesus. I would say two things simply uh, as we move towards wrapping this up. Trust and repentance. Now, this is when... um, uh, I begin to not sound like myself. Um, Trust and repentance. I don't say that a lot uh, because for many, myself included, I start to get a little hot around the collar when like religious people start saying repent. You know what I'm saying? You guys saw that those people outside of the stadium? One of my kids just saw that person the other day. They were like, repent! The good news is coming! You're going to hell! It's like, what? Do you hear yourself? Repent, the good news has come. Why are you yelling at me then? Right? Bullhorn guy, we call that. Um, or maybe you hear like your, your grandparents' choir, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Trust and repentance. I'm sticking with it though. Here's what I mean by that. These two words often get a bad rap among evangelical Christians and I'm going to try to breathe a little bit of life into them. Trust. Trust in Jesus the human to show me what it looks like to be human. I want to suggest that the Bible is offering the possibility that Jesus is the the pinnacle. Jesus is the quintessential. He is the representative human being. By that I mean that like, if you want to know what it looks like to live humanity well and full and as you were intended to live it, Jesus is the answer. I know it sounds Sunday school, but it's actually true in this one. That Jesus is the representative human. There is no higher good that humanity can participate in. So when Jesus says, love your enemies and forgive those who persecute you, that's actually a better way to be human. So what Jesus is offering in the church tradition, they called it the moral exemplar. Jesus is an example. His life, his teachings, his way of being human is actually the best because it's others-focused. It's This way, it's relationship, it's based out of love, and it's rooted in love, and it's empowered by love, it's animated by love, instead of me. So we trust in Jesus, the human, to show me what it looks like to be human. But then there's this flip of the coin, right? That we trust in Jesus, the Christ, who does something on my behalf that I cannot do on my own, that you cannot do on your own, that the scriptures are offering the possibility that Jesus is, in fact, the divine, become human to do something for me and for you and for the world that we clearly cannot get right on our own. And listen, gang, there are people who have been saying this for a long, long time. This is the lie of the enlightenment, I would argue, that, like, we've got it. Humanity, if we just like learn a little bit more and go to school a little bit longer and like do a little bit more justice training, we'll get it right. I, I, I just don't buy it. Like, did you watch the news last night? 
Have you seen the recent tweets from our political figures? You can interpret that however you'd like. I just don't think that like it's in me and in us to like get it right to where love and hope and justice and like that's the that rules the day. So the scriptures are offering the possibility that Jesus the Christ is the divine become human to show us what it looks like to be human and then to do on our behalf what we cannot do on our own. What I can't create, what I can't manufacture, what I can't sustain, that it's the Christ. God's gracious gift being offered then and now for me and for you. So new birth, if it's true that I need some kind of regeneration, some kind of becoming awake, some kind of healing in my soul, I trust Jesus the human and Jesus the Christ, and then repent. Now, what does that even mean, repent? Repent, Micah, repent. Uh, two words, Greek and Hebrew, it shows up in the Bible, and it's actually beautiful. It's so amazing. I think repent gets a bad rap, y'all. Repent in Greek is the word metanoia, and it literally means changed thinking after having been with. Do you have anyone in your life who, after you've been with them, you are less than you were before? <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I had a friend in college, and whenever I would hang out with this guy, Laura would always be like, you were with so-and-so, weren't you? Because you are acting like a jack... Right? You're more cynical, you're more mean, you're swearing more. You had to have been with him. I know it, right? After having been with, I was changed. And then there was another friend of mine in college who I was with, and she's like, oh, God, I love that guy. He just... He makes you better you. Like, after having been with that person, I was changed. That's what repent means in Greek. Like, after having been with, you are changed. After having new information or been in the presence of, like, something shifts in you and changes in you. Repent. After having been with, after having understood, after having knowledge of Jesus the Christ, something changes in you. Repent. And then in Hebrew, it's, it's even better. It just means turn around. It's so simple. It's the word teshuva. So it's like if, if you're headed in this direction and you, you're like, I want to be a drummer, and you find out that like in the end, being a drummer is just a terrible thing for your life, and like it brings all sorts of death and to everybody, to your friends, your neighbors, all the people around you, and you realize, like, oh my gosh, I'm walking towards death. And then you're just like, oh, all right, I'm going to walk the other way. You're like, oh, I'm going to play the piano, oh, right? No. <laughs> it's guitars, it's guitars. It's just turn around. Like, it's just turn around after having seen something for the first time or in a new way, and you realize that it is not as life-giving as you once thought it was. Just change directions. Change the course of your path. Repent. As we close this morning, I want to offer the possibility that your life is not a series of meaningless events, that you are not a collection of cells and synapses, but that you were made from something and for something, and that something is love. And that in me and in you, there is a needed and necessary moment and moments of new births, of awakenings, of coming alive, of being resurrected, of being changed, of being transformed and that the scandalous, crazy, unbelievable nature of this story is that in Jesus, that is being offered. That has been offered and is being offered right here and right now. So I don't know what you walked in the door with this morning or, or what kind of uh, things you've been thinking about, but this idea, it's the center of the story. And I want to offer it to you this morning as something to think about. 
new birth, this being born again, woken up, resurrected, given sight, found, is being offered right here and right now. So say yes. Say yes to that. Say, say yes to being born again or again or again or again or again. Maybe it's like seeing your spouse in a new light after 25 years of being married. And you realize like, oh my gosh, I've been like walking towards death. And I want to turn around and walk a different direction. Maybe it's doing your job in a new way where you're like, oh my gosh, I've been doing this career for 30 years and I'm doing it in an unintegrated fashion and I want to be like a whole person who can stand by my work in a way that I never have before. Be born again! Say yes! Repent! Walk towards that. What's life-giving? Does your life produce the kind of fruit that's generative and full of life and full of joy and full of hope and full of love? If it is and if it does, my guess is you've been born again. Probably more than once. I'll close with this. This is one of my favorite quotes of covenant literature. Such a high doctrine of conversion does not mean that all believers have dramatic conversion experiences. Get this. While no one remembers the moment of their physical birth, one's present life is evidence of its occurrence. Come on. Right? Say it again, Micah. Okay. While no one remembers the moment of physical birth, one's present life is evidence of its occurrence. So a person may be truly converted even though he or she has no memory of the moment of new birth. The vitality of life is the proof of birth, not its memory or recollection. I'm going to invite my friend Nat Fundell. This series, we've been asking people to come and just share, like, why wells and fences? Like, what does this mean to you? Uh, so, a view from the pew, as it were, would you please welcome my good friend, Nat Fondell. Thank you. Thanks, Micah. Hi, my name is Nat. Um, I'm honored to be here. If we haven't met, you've probably heard my kids, um, especially on days where we get donuts, um, but we usually sit over there. I was... When Micah asked if I wanted to share today, um, I was surprised, and after I thought about it a little bit, I was doubly surprised at how much this theme has meant to me recently, um, wells and fences. I've been thinking about it a lot, and I'm really thankful to be able to talk about it kind of at length with people and see what you guys think. The last three years have felt all about fences to me, um, and this has really impacted the way I experience God in the world. It feels like our fences have multiplied and intensified, dividing us into new groups and along new lines. Sometimes this feels good to insulate behind specific fences and complain and judge, but mostly it leaves me feeling like the world is fragmented, especially with others in the faith community and especially with extended family and with old friends. But that's why I wanna talk about wells. Lately, I've been seeing my work as a well. I'm lucky to be nearing the end of my training as a family medicine and addiction doctor in North Minneapolis. What this means for me is that every day in the hospital or in the clinic, I get the unbelievable chance to talk to people who are in the middle of recovery from alcohol or from opiates. Most of my patients have heroin use disorder or long-term pain med use that they can no longer control themselves. The part of this work that excites me so much is that we get to give them concrete help using this medication called Suboxone. This medicine acts as a substitute for the drugs that their bodies are used to, allowing them to focus on recovery or their regular life or their family. And it's much harder to misuse or overdose on. 
Because of this, my patients have this strong incentive to come see me, and they see me regularly, and they see me frequently, especially at the beginning, and then they can space out over time. Now, as a result of this, we can sometimes build trust with our patients very quickly, and they often tell us things they don't tell anyone else. You know, I've been using heroin since I ran out of pain meds, and I've never told anybody except you and my dealer. I'm worried if I, lose my, I might lose my high-level job if anyone finds out that I can't control this pain med use. I think it's time for me to leave my family, but I can't face telling my kids about it. This trust is overwhelming, but it's also so fulfilling. Where the idea of Wells comes into the picture for me is that in the history of this addiction treatment, most of the care for these patients has been done in special addiction clinics called methadone clinics. These are specific clinics that take care of people who are in recovery, and they have to go there daily, especially at first, to get their medicine. This is a stigmatizing and triggering environment for many people. The work that I get to do is done in a regular family medicine clinic, and that means that patients can get their care right next to someone's sweet grandmother who is there getting her blood pressure medicine. My patients who've been to these methadone clinics, which are great and have a great purpose, tell me that there's a huge difference for them to come to our clinic. They feel that they can hold their heads up high with less stigma and less drama. Our waiting room has kids playing with toys and reading books, as opposed to frequent fights and the temptation of dealers. And seeing our clinic as a well has extended further than this for me. I've also been a leader in the process that allows our clinic to now provide transgender hormone care, which has a transformative effect on people similar to Suboxone. This means that rather than having to go to a specialty gender clinic, which can be very supportive but is also stigmatizing, my patients can get the hormone therapy that they need at the same place where they get their annual checkups or where their kids can go for well child checks. Also, our clinic just approved the prescribing of HIV medication to one of my patients, which means they no longer have to visit an HIV-specific clinic either. They can now simply refill these medicines that give them the same life expectancy as anyone, right alongside their vitamins or their cholesterol meds. These are the people on the margins, people that I think Jesus might lump in with the widows and orphans. Normalizing these treatments, mixing all these patients together in the waiting room and into each other's lives, could hopefully help some, each individual patient feel like someone who is welcome at a well, rather than divided by the towering fences they've been navigating for years. And I hope that eventually it will humanize these conditions for the rest of us who drink at the well. Thanks. Would you pray with me as we move towards communion? God, this morning we want to take just a moment of silence to reflect on what it means to be people who have been invited, who have been um, offered this gift of new life and of new birth, of being awakened and regenerated and resurrected and found. And so I pray that whatever, in whatever way that um, message comes to us this morning, that it would come as it often does, kindly and gently, like a still, small voice. So give us ears to hear and eyes to see, I pray.
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it with his friends. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And whenever you eat of this, um, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup and he blessed it and said, this is my blood, my body, or my blood shed for you, a new covenant written between God and humanity. And whenever you drink of it, remember that this has been given for you. So in just a moment, we'll invite you to come down the side aisles and uh, there'll be three communion stations in the front. There's red wine and white grape juice, uh, gluten-free is in the center. And we'll invite you to take the bread and dip it in the cup and hear the words, the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. Um, in just a minute, the kids will come down and we'll give them a blessing. And um, we're gonna, there's no singing, or there's just music in the background here this morning. So take the time to pray and think and reflect. Um, maybe a little bit more space than, than normal there. So uh, this is the table not of the church but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith or you who have little, you who have been here often or maybe not for a long time or ever before, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed. This is the table of God and the gifts of God for the people of God. So come not because I invite you or the church invites you, but because Christ invites you to come and be fed and known here at the table.
I think anybody that uh, is honest about this journey that we're on called life is that it seems to be a series of deaths and births. Like there's always things that are dying and there are always things that are being born again, reborn, birthed. Um, Lent is a journey of allowing something to die so that something else can be born. So it's a huge concept. It's really big. It's maybe the most important. And I think it's also just like daily. Um, I, I don't know about you, but for Lent, I gave something up for a series of days and found that um, there was just some ways that I was relating to something that weren't giving life. And, uh, and I'm like turning around and maybe going in a different direction. I'm, I'm getting born again right here today in front of you. So I would just invite you, whatever it feels like is dying or needs to die or is ready to die, to allow the divine into that process, to say, God, what is it in me that needs to die so that something else can be born? Um, and whatever that next step is, maybe there's only one thing from today you can say yes to. Like, I'm a, I can trust that Jesus' example as a human being is a good one, and like, I could pattern my life after that. Great, awesome, let's do that. Um, maybe it's deeper, maybe it's more, maybe it's less, um, but... Would you stand as we close this morning? And I offer this blessing to you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said together, amen. Grace and peace, my friends. See ya.